0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. I'm Rachel Pether. I'm a senior advisor at Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investments firm, as well as the MC for SALT, a global thought leadership forum and networking platform encompassing finance, business, and politics. SALT Talks is a series of digital interviews with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. Just as we do at our global SALT events, we aim to empower big, important ideas, and provide our audience a window into the mind of subject matter experts. Today, we're very excited to welcome Nabil Al-Maskari to Salt Talks. Nabil's not only someone I consider a true friend, he's also the CEO of Al-Maskari Holding, which is the privately owned holding company for the Al-Maskari family portfolio. He's the third generation of leadership in what is a truly remarkable family, which I'm sure him and Anthony will be discussing shortly. Prior to joining his family conglomerate, Nabil was a management consultant for McKinsey. He sponsors philanthropic initiatives in Africa and Asia through his family's nonprofit foundation, and he actively supports high impact entrepreneurs as a board member of Endeavour UAE. Nabil received his MBA with distinction from Yale. Hosting today's talk will be Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge, and also the chairman of SALT, just a reminder, if you have any questions for Nabil, just enter them in the QA section on your Zoom screen. And with that, I'll hand over to Anthony.
1: Rachel, thank you. And uh, we're going to give a shout out in memoriam to John Darcy because he had his last SALT talk yesterday. You're now the new host, so welcome aboard. No, I'm just kidding, John. Okay, take it easy. I know you're watching. I'm just kidding. Uh, Nabil, how are you? Doing very well. Thank you very much. So Nabil, for, for those of us in the United States that uh, are not super familiar with the UAE, uh, tell us a little bit about the UAE and also your family, your family's history there, and a little bit about your business and yourself. How's that?
2: That's a big question, Nabil. Sure. We're going to fit it all into the first question. OK. So <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll start where I think um, the, the history does. So we're a young country. And we were formed December 2nd in 1971. So we're less than 50 years old, but the history of the region obviously goes back much further and it's one very much structured around families. And, and I think that's a poignant way to connect the two because ultimately even though uh, we have a constitution and we have a lot of federal structures, ultimately um, these are an indigenous people that have grown up and really over the course of history uh, come to adopt a lot of the norms of government, but ultimately the, the familiar relationships, the way that we've interacted with one another, respect, trust, uh, loyalty, those things are just sort of in a in a new format of, of sort of the UAE. So for us as a family, um, although we of course look at the UAE as the most important recognition point, if there's a family business, we're actually older than the union, right? So in many cases, you're gonna interact with people who have a long sense of historical perspective. Um, I think just a moment here, and and it would be a a nice reflection. Today, actually, to talk about how young we are, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is celebrating its 90th uh, anniversary today. And actually, if we had really timed this better, Anthony, about uh, 15 minutes ago, you've been to my office here in in Capitol Gate. The jets had done a flyby. If you remember, my office is the hard deck in Abu Dhabi, and they were streaming the Saudi green colors in honor of, of that. So I think it's one of the fact that, The region itself has a lot of age to it, Um, but the countries are still young, not not like the United States who itself is considered a young democracy. Sure.
1: But you know, it's an amazing country. And so uh, as you, you know, we had our SALT conference there in December, obviously you and your family attended, Rachel was a phenomenal host, Uh, but the facilities there were amazing. The, um, your country is a state-of-the-art country. So tell us a little bit about the vision For the UAE. And then I obviously want to get into your family. So so tell us about the
2: vision there. Sure. I mean, you know, like many, we set out these goals. And and in many cases, we've been very aspirational. Um, I I do think that it's important when you talk about the vision of the UAE to put in the context that we are in a region that oftentimes is characterized by our relationship to oil. And I, I say that because the family foundation story is one of oil and gas. And even though many people from around the world may first think about the UAE in the context of being an oil producer or for institutional investors being a location as a source of capital, it's much more than that, right? And it has used its natural resources as a way to transform not only the infrastructure, but really the economy of the UAE to make it both vibrant, sustainable, but extremely competitive in a very new landscape. So today, when you come to visit our country, depending if you land in either Dubai or Abu Dhabi, It's a very different experience, right? And I think they're complementary ones. You've been to both cities. Uh, Many who have come to Dubai talk about the experience around hospitality, um, some of the glamour. And when they come to Abu Dhabi, it's a counterpoint around heritage and culture. And I think these two have a symbiosis in terms of how they're structured and and really how we want to present ourselves to the world.
1: And listen, it's it's an amazing place and uh, God bless you guys. And I wish you continued success and a... A shout out to our Saudi friends on their, their anniversary as well. Uh, and so let's go to the family for a second. Tell us a little bit about your family. Imagine I'm a, I'm an, an American, I'm visiting Abu Dhabi for the first time and I'm walking into your office and, uh, and uh, your family has
2: quite a legacy in your country. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think if you were to enter offices, the the first thing you would see is kind of a trophy wall and it's dedicated really to my my mother. And and I think that's the first thing to know about us is that we are a matriarchal family. Um, That's somewhat contrarian. And I think the fact that my mother um, is largely known on on sort of two litmus, the first being among the first real women in in a leadership position in in the private sector, but also for for her work in um, humanitarian causes and around the world. But, but for her and for our family, I think it goes back to a point of service. We look at ourselves as an Emirati family, largely trying to find the mechanisms in which we can both empower the country and the citizens. And, and it really comes down to saying, if in the past decades, we were not able to identify our source, the kind of support internally, we as a family would often go overseas to identify the best partners, whether they be you know, private companies or governments and try to attract them into the region to help develop that maturity curve of, of our of our infrastructure. So we went from oil and gas, we shifted into a lot of different verticals. It's healthcare, ICT, we do security work, but always with a focus towards the government or public sector. Because we look at ourselves primarily as one that tries to support their aspirations. We don't feel that we're particularly suited to serving on the consumer side. So we're not a family that you will see on billboards. It's probably why many who are watching may not know our family name. But when you come into the, the government in the country, we're a family well associated with those specific areas, right? So we don't sell any products or services to individuals. And it goes back to a tenant said from my grandmother that said, don't profit from the people. Um, we look to serve them. And we do that by the way of our portfolio. It's an amazing story. I, I, I want you to know, I. Uh...
1: I'm not giving up uh, on trying to get into the will. You know, I've talked to your mom about it. And so, <laughs> true, so true. far the answer is no, but I'm just letting you know, I'm not giving up. I'm a persistent person to feel, So I think you know, AJ, know, AJ
2: you wants know, you to do that more right, than, than probably. Right, right, right.
1: Exactly. My son, AJ was blown away uh, by her presence and charisma as am I by yours. Uh, I'm going to shift gears slightly here though. I want to talk a little bit about your legacy and how you're thinking about your, your family's portfolio and, Taking over uh, from a very prominent matriarch, so tell us about the future vision of uh, Al maskari Holdings.
2: Sure. So I, I do think that you know when my mother was first involved in the, in the sort of industry here, and she was the first woman PhD, first uh, woman engineer. She's a PhD geophysicist. That naturally meant that we were focused on oil and gas, right? It was literally in the blood. And my father was a PhD geologist, so the focus by way of industry had always tilted them. But I like to think of ourselves as evolving into a clean energy family rather than an oil and gas family. And that means that we serve and we look to find ways that we continue to challenge kind of the precepts around what we do as a family. And and that's really why we started getting involved with with sort of my tenure of leadership to, to sort of the international capital markets because we started to really recognize that the traditional foundations as a Sharia family in order to continue to sustain the economy and diversify away from oil and gas, you needed to find mechanisms for both foreign investment and well as private sector investment. And we could lead that in the way that we had led in generations past in oil and gas. So today, when I talk about my vision, it's really one that's a reflection of this evolution of thinking and challenging ourselves. How do we remain relevant? How do we continue to best support and serve our governments and our countries? And I think ultimately that comes down to today, a dialogue around Abu Dhabi, which is my hometown, as kind of a gateway to a much broader region. And I know, you know, you've had conversations in the past and you've heard us talk about the Miasa or Middle East, Africa, South Asia, but I do very much think that Abu Dhabi will always remain relevant because it's an epicenter, not only of resources, but it's an epicenter of capital flow to the growing part of the world.
1: Well, and I'll, I'll add something to that. I think you you've, you're the country has a very well-thought-out infrastructure and a very well-thought-out long-term vision. And also, from a regulatory perspective, it has this very interesting entrepreneurial platform uh, where many people from many areas of the world can come into the country and establish a, uh, a stronghold, if you will, to reach the other uh, areas of Miasa. So, uh, But before we go into Miasa, let's talk about, you have uh, three beautiful daughters, God bless you, um, tell me a little bit about how you view
2: their future, and how do you see gender diversity, Nabil? Look, you know, I, I look at my role very much as one of stewardship. Um, we are a matriarchal family. I'm blessed, as, as you say, to, to have three daughters. Um, we will be matriarchal uh, for, for, I hope, long years to come. Um, I, I think when I have this reflection on the time that I've been spending in, in the family business, is one very much of recognizing that the role of sort of gender inclusion has really changed from when my mother's time was, which is going back to the 1970s and 80s, and really where we are today. To give you a sense, and and I think it's an interesting sort of bookmark around the the social experiment. You know, my mother, as we talked about, was a first amongst her, first woman engineer, first woman uh, PhD. And in some ways, a generation later, my wife, was a first in in other areas. So she was the first woman executive of a a regional media entity. She was the CEO of Dubai Media. She was the first woman among the batch pointed to the Federal National Council, which is sort of our, I'm gonna give you the sense around, it's our parliament or it's our consultative body. Um, And, you know, she was able to do these first because we are on a trajectory that has an increasing arc of inclusion. And I think that when I look forward to my daughters, I hope that the dialogue is not qualified by being, they are the first woman, but rather they are just the first. Because I don't think that the peaks that we have yet to discover or yet to ascend are gonna be qualified by the fact that it is a woman to have reached after a man, but rather it will be a woman to have reached irrespective of their gender. So I have a strong aspiration to do that. I'm very blessed that my wife has had a strong leadership role in raising our children. And, and inshallah, as we say here, you know, I will be alive when I can see some of these firsts for them.
1: And it's a phenomenal message. So so uh, last week, Russell Reed, who is a partner of yours, uh, spoke passionately about the Miasa region and the high population growth and the rising consumption and the middle class. And uh, I want to get your views. And for those that don't know uh, uh, Russell Reed, uh, tell us a little bit about his background, which, of course, is amazing.
2: Uh, mm-hmm sure so look russell i think first came onto our radar when he was serving in the gic which is the gulf investment corporation it's a sovereign wealth fund owned by the gcc member states um and it's based in kuwait but but he had a long history prior to that at at cio of calper's had moved after gic into the alaska permanent fund and it was within that role that he had first approached us to talk about building this MIASA construct And, you know, he's been a good partner to us, both in sparring and, and of course, in developing the strategy. We have chosen to take that, which now started as a public equity strategy, and we have continued to sort of apply that within the illiquid, you know, space and saying, how can we do this in private equity? So when you think about the region, and I can give you a lot more color to when we think about Miasa and how do we characterize it, we see it one very much colored in, in sort of opportunity. I know that when I travel to the Nordics and, and you know well, we've had a lot of experience up there, many times the region is viewed with a perspective of risk, right? And, and I think that the reason we see opportunity is that in many instances, especially when you apply sort of fundamentals around ESG, you will see some of the leading opportunities actually occurring within the MiASA region. So to give some context to that, if we just look at the E portion, and some of the work that's being done in the region around solar. We continue to send lower and lower benchmarks for sort of the, the actual fit rate, right? So how cheaply can we produce sustainable, clean energy? And from a PV perspective, we're down to like you know extremely low levels, 1.35 cents a kilowatt hour. I mean, that is a remarkable number when you talk about an energy mix that starts fundamentally with natural gas on our electricity. And it continues to evolve, right? So we're looking at setting new benchmarks for uh, concentrated solar in in having almost carbon-neutral desalinated water. That would be, again, on a cubic meter basis, be among some of the lowest in the world being produced. So it's a competitive environment that is a little bit structured around the natural geography. We are in a, obviously, sunny region. But it's the technology adoption that the leadership puts in place by way of investment policies, attracting the right companies. As you said, it's a participation mechanism right we invite whether they be from far asia or the united states the leading entities to come in to set up we partner with them locally and we can actually send benchmarks that the rest of the world will then soon follow
1: listen i think it's a long-term brilliant strategy i can speak specifically about skybridge we want to have a presence in the region and ultimately a presence in abu dhabi which we've already begun and so Unfortunately, we were, we we're heading back to the region in December, but it's been delayed because of the pandemic. But we're hopeful and optimistic we can be back in 2021. I want to shift gears a little bit to ESG, Neville, Talk to us a little bit about the ESG investing that you're doing and ESG and the context of the, of the region and the recognition that ultimately uh, we'll be transferring uh, the economies of the world, frankly, away from fossil
2: fuels. Uh, tell us your your thoughts there. Well, look, we, I mean, we primarily engage with institutional investors. My father um, was one of the old guard of Adia, um, and, and so I've always had that sort of breakfast table mentality of how do you look at uh, investing at scale, but in a way in which you can do so uh, with prudence towards your, your kind of investor base or your, your capital base. And, and largely when we talk with pensions, institutional investors they obviously have integrated ESG into their investment thesis, not only from a standpoint of risk mitigation, but I also think that there is, um, there is some data, I mean, depending on which, which, which markets you look at, that you know, ESG over time will outperform their relative benchmarks. And I think that we completely agree with that thesis. We see that in, in, in public equities. The challenge, I think, Anthony, is that when you start quantifying it, and of the few rating agencies that are out there, so if we look at like an MSCI or State Analytics, in many instances when you're talking about Western market public equities, you find that there will be low correlation or even negative correlation around some of their perspectives of an ESG rating composite given a specific equity. So I think that there isn't sort of conformity around the perspective of what ESG means. And I think that's the fundamental challenge we have. When we adopt ESG, what we try to do is we try to norm that to the expectations of not only the LPs that we represent, but more importantly, we're trying to develop that in tandem with institutional investors. So what we've had an opportunity to do here locally is engage in a dialogue with academia, ourselves as a private actor, engaging with our sovereigns as well. And we hope to embark on an ESG lab, which we hope will be announced very shortly here in Abu Dhabi, and it will be around creating the right research opportunities to say, can we develop framework for ESG in illiquid or private equity type opportunities in the Miasa region? Why? Because ultimately that's where the capital flows will go. Whether it's in Africa, because it's a consumption and growth story, whether it's in South Asia, because they're gonna be the belt road initiatives, you know that the capital will flow there. The question is how will you deploy it at scale and how will you adopt from a framework standpoint, the right not only strategy, but reporting mechanisms to allow those pensions that are sitting up in Stockholm or in New York to be able to be comfortable with their strategies. So it's 2035.
1: It's 15 years from now. Tell us about Abu Dhabi. Tell us about Miasa. Tell us about Almaskari Holdings. Where are we?
2: Look, I think a 15-year lens is, is, is an incredibly aspirational viewpoint. You know, when I grew up, and I think we've talked about this before, um, and I look from the landscape of my office in, in just one short generation, it's completely changed. So the yeah. world in which I grew up in Abu Dhabi, which was beachfronts, very few high-rises, now when you come here, it's a, it's a completely different experience. What I think we can recognize is that if we Not just- interrupt you, but
1: I would say in the last 15 years, it's been an unbelievable explosion of that sort of urbanization yeah. and activity so yeah. exponential growth there are,
2: there are islands that are being developed today that you know we would never go to when we were younger right i mean in in many cases and I, I feel that there are so few emiratis and obviously i represent an emirati family that when we traveled around the world i almost give them the euphemism that you're all ambassadors of your country right uh, what i hope and and it's the vision not only for our family because we're we're we're, we're people um, but we're from a populace that one that is looking and seeking peace, right? So I would just touch on and say, 15 years from now, the greatest aspiration, and I think the reflection of what the leadership's vision would be, is one of a sustainable and prosperous Abu Dhabi and UAE that is at sort of the beacon to make sure that regional conflicts are deescalating. We're looking for, greater opportunities of integration, cooperation, and fundamentally that'll be built around these peace accords. Obviously, the Abraham Accord is something that happened very recently last week in the United States, but that has been a building momentum towards uh, tolerance, right? So I look at this and say 15 years from now, I hope that the region and, and certainly our country is recognized for its leadership in areas that are around governance and around sort of respect towards peoples, right? And we can do that as a private journey. I think the governments have to lead and they have to show us by example, but we have an obligation to also engage in that dialogue and actually take the acts ourselves because policies absent participation of the people, they're just non, they're non-functional, right? I I agree. I
1: mean, one of the things I would add, which is uh, one of the real strengths of the UAE is the legal system and the legal precedents and the foundation of creating that certainty, frankly, for foreigners that that legal system is rock solid. There's no capricious activity in that legal system. Uh, and that's usually the hallmark of great commercial success uh, uh, for a country. So, uh, I mean, there's so many things I'm impressed with. Before I turn it over to Rachel, who, who we have a ton of audience uh, questions. Uh, I want to ask you one last question about the Belt and Road Initiative. What are your thoughts there,
2: and how do you think that's going to affect Miasa? So, look, ultimately, I look at the the initiative as one in which you have to play kind of by derivatives, right? It's not an opportunity to directly invest into the strategy. It's one largely geopolitical. I think that that connectivity is a historical uh, um, sort of bond between these these regions. And and whether you call it the Silk Road, whether you call it Miasa, I, I think ultimately, we have very different perspectives. And it's very ethnocentric in how we choose to have the nomenclature and identify. But ultimately, it's around the fact that there is a natural flow by way of both resource centers and consumption. That there's opportunities to create wealth, and that's been there since the times of Ibn Battuta, the times of Marco Polo. It doesn't matter. We all have our explorers that have sort of gone and forged ahead. For us, I think it's going to be by capital flow, right? It's not going to be by discovering those new frontiers in geography. Let me just let me just say one one quick thing before we we, we turn to some other points, because it's it's something that was on my mind, and I wanted to kind of raise with you. You know. It, we talked a lot about the role of women and we talked a lot about, you know, how things are changing and sort of the political discourse here. Um, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't have an opportunity, you know, that I studied in the United States, just to extend my condolences uh, to, to, to the United States around the loss of justice Ginsburg an amazing icon. Uh, and, and obviously somebody who, when you're a student of history, irrespective of politics, I think that you could recognize the role that she played and she, I hope, as history will show uh, is an inspiration point for many. So I just wanted to extend those condolences to to, to obviously your side as well. Well, it's very, it's very sweet of
1: you to do that. And uh, uh, one of uh, my most brilliant memories, frankly, is you, me, my son, AJ, and your mom talking about the love affair that you guys have with the United States and our new love affair with the UAE. So uh, uh, I do appreciate that. Also, you know, uh, it goes without saying, but I am going to mention it, we've had over 200,000 deaths in the country. And so at some point, we're going to have to figure that out as well, which uh, obviously gives us both great sadness. But uh, I want to switch to something optimistic and joyful. We've got Rachel, our new host of the Salt Talks. Look at her. She just karate chopped John Darcy and the Adam's apple in the bill. So, you know, I obviously enjoyed that. So Rachel, I'm turning it over to you and uh, the questions we have from the audience.
0: Um, thanks so much, Anthony, for uh, stirring up that competitive spirit, and also to Nabil for that great discussion. Um, one thing that we're seeing a lot of in the institutional investor community, and this was touched on by Russell last week as well, is innovation partnerships, whether that's at a co-investment level or, or in joint ventures. And I think when we're looking at the Mayasa region, uh, one concern that institutional investors sometimes have, whether justified or otherwise, uh, issues around transparency. Could, so, could you talk a bit more about your partnership approach and how that might resolve some of these issues? Or perception. Look, it's a
2: fair point. And, and you know, I, I think it's the right way to ask the question because transparency, which sort of is, is the governance quotient, um, has always been this point of reticence in terms of engaging to the region, because whether it be just purely opaque and you didn't understand what was going on or whether you believe that you had an obscured view, I think that had always been one of the constraints around capital. Um, As a private family, we've had the privilege to have partnered both with governments, so we've worked directly with Tomasic uh, Company Portfolios in generations past. we partnered with U.S. listed companies and and continue to do so. So I have a little bit of sense of the spectrum of how one needs to position themselves to be able to kind of partner. And ultimately, I, I think this goes to the idea that, you know, we will continue to see a constraint around the performance of our companies if we don't adopt the proper principles of transparency and governance, both at the board and at an executive level, right? So I think, irrespective, capital will flow to those most deserving of it. I think what we need to do in the peer group, right, working with institutional investors and others, is create the opportunity to showcase those success stories because, unfortunately, Many of them have not evolved significantly to the maturity curve to be in a public market opportunity. Most of them are earlier phase. And when you talk about the opening around technology and integration, I think that's really the touch point of sort of that tangency. You you get to come into the market. Typically these are high growth. They are not homogeneous. It's It's a very difficult region. Miasa over 90 countries is how we define it. But ultimately there is some, consistency around the approach. And that requires localization. Ultimately, the only way one can be successful across such a diverse geography is to be able to have a strong ground game. And I know this is the same whether you're a US investor and you're talking about you know, New England or sort of the Southwest. It also requires a very localized approach. And I think that's where we will have to look at manager selection. We will have to look at engaging with the right forums to be able to bring those leaders to the forefront and get them the right support.
0: We've actually had some audience questions come in related to two separate points that you just spoke about, the capital piece and the technology piece. Uh, Someone asked, what can investors from other countries bring to help the UAE and the Al-Mascari family achieve their goals? Money is less of the issue, but what about other strategic purposes? So are there specific things that you're looking at? And the country so, more
2: broadly. Look, I, I, as I said at the outset, I mean, we very much take um, uh, we take our scripts from where we think the government has need. Uh, we very much look to the public sector, whether it be from an offtake perspective or a support perspective. Um, and I think the signalling is clear there. When you're having a fast-growing economy, um, but one in a COVID environment, what you begin to realize is that in generations past, you became you know probably overly reliant on international supply right so today domestic production whether it be in food or other sort of key verticals is is almost a strategic imperative it's not something that you look at from a standpoint of sort of protectionism right this isn't a sort of policy effect around you know creating sort of protected jobs this is an idea around saying how can we ensure that we're able to support our region's growth and do it from within the region so thematically clearly food security, which goes across agri into water. You have to look at some sort of light manufacturing, because as I say, we are in a very actual low energy cost environment. We're able to produce at scale, whether you see this in our steel or aluminum industries. So there will be ways that we can become a net exporter of certain ones in which we have sort of, again, I like the new du jour term of geo arbitrage, right? But we have some endowments that we should be leveraging to our advantage. And, And I think that when we as a family look at that, we try to figure out where can we both support the economy and be the right sort of access point for those who want to come in i I would just draw attention and happy to get you know anthony to weigh back in on this i think one of the concerns we have when we're as a family looking at this i remember being uh, a student in the united states uh when uh, the first sort of syphius ruling came around dpw remember back in 06 we were we were sort of looking at the, the the port acquisition and I was coming out of business school prior to being a management consultant, and this was literally like the perfect case point of saying, how do you look at, you know, foreign direct investment, technology, and and protectionism, right, in terms of how that, that, that policy went forward. There were a lot of learnings from that. But I think we as a global community now, when we look at the evolution of CFIUS and now the new FIRMA, which most people didn't even see that legislation come into effect in 2018 under the current administration, and now seeing the implications around, you know, China and technology into the United States, that's clearly where we as investors and technology partners need to realize that you have almost a geopolitical viewpoint on your partnerships, right? It's it's almost economic diplomacy that's happening. And if you don't recognize that, and if you don't calibrate for it, I think you're on the downside of 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 return. And I think you have a lot more risk that you're not actually calibrating in.
1: So I mean, just 30 seconds. I I would say that there's a trade isolationism, uh, which is somewhat similar to the isolationist view in the late 20s and the early 30s for the United States, which Franklin Roosevelt gave a very famous speech about and cautioned people on. Moreover, uh, we remember Roosevelt for many things, but the relationship that he built with Ibn Saud, uh, the founder of Saudi Arabia, Uh, really cemented the U.S. alliance, if you will, with Saudi Arabia and eventually the UAE. And so I just caution my fellow Americans to recognize that America first uh, may feel like America alone. It may not be in the best long-term interest of the United States. Sometimes we clutch to our tribalism and our nativism, uh, where the natural forces uh, we're better off uh, uh, combining and conjoining uh, because of what David Ricardo said. And I'll just remind everybody, uh, David Ricardo said that no nation can get what they want or need in terms of goods and services at the lowest cost without trading with other nations. So it's just a cautionary reminder of where I think we all need to go in terms of reducing our tribal feelings and reducing our what are our perceived differences and recognizing that we have way more in common uh, and so anyway I'm off my soapbox and I'll turn it back to Rachel but I definitely love what you're saying Nabil and I think we all have to go that way directionally
0: you know those are really interesting points and you know from the sovereign wealth fund perspective as Nabil mentioned when the DP world sort of investment broke down it was then, when the sovereign wealth funds came in after the financial crisis, they were sort of seen as the white knights, and that's when we started to see a bit of a shift uh, from the institutional investor community then. Um, just a couple more questions from me, Nabil. How has Al Maskari Holdings been affected by COVID, and have you seen it creating any shifts in the UAE economy more broadly?
2: So I'll answer on two. I mean, certainly for our portfolio, we're fortunate that we have a strong bias towards ICT. I think we pivoted to that in the last 18 to 24 months um, and extended. Um, We have a lot of multinationals that provide those ITC services, but these are large listed companies that are actually uh, supporting the telcos or doing digital transformation. So from that standpoint, I think we were well poised as a family to provide those services. As you looked at remote working, and obviously the ability for us as a a country to be able to create the right safe environment to continue to kind of engage, right? And I think that's what's important. Economies cannot shut down. They need to adapt, evolve, and ultimately I think they can become more efficient as a throughput of the exercise, right? So from an ICT perspective, we've done and we're alhamdulillah we're blessed to have those those companies in our portfolio i think that the uae because we had done so much work towards digital government now you're seeing policy evolutions around once only which are kind of again these are ideas where they're adopted in europe if you give the uh, documents, let's say one time to a European government, they can't ask a second time. So it requires a work share within it. So you're seeing a lot of these efficiency gains that will come from this digital transformation. I think the interesting point and the opportunity for us all is that when you look at the potential role redundancies that occur because of the either shift towards shared services or towards this outsourcing model, you become more lean and you digitize sort of operations. I think that's where there's a real, you know, opportunity for a family like ours, structured around empowerment, amortization, to come in and say, how do we make sure that the individuals are retrained, repurposed, and ultimately redeployed into meaningful roles? Those that can't, i.e. they're either not suited or skilled, that's where the government, I think, has announced a lot of policies to find ways to invest into their people. And that's ultimately a question that goes back to when you ask, you know, what can can you describe about the UAE? Who is the UAE? What is it? It's a country that's really focused on the citizens and the residents, not just one exclusively to the other. So they're trying to find the right balance of a sustainable economy. You see that now with announcements where in the past, the government would have maybe direct companies engaging in services. They become a little bit more reluctant to perform those where they're letting competition now actually occur organically. So I think that you need to recognize that the landscape is a a quick-moving one, it's dynamic, but it will ultimately require us to kind of look to our international partners that have gone through these exercises in much larger economies and actually bring those best practices here to the UAE and to the region.
0: Fabulous. Thanks so much, Nabil. And we've just got time for one more question, and you have answered quite a lot of difficult questions today, so I'm going to give you a nice easy one that's coming from... Sebastian, he's asked, "How can we learn more about the UAE and its history? Is there a book or some films that you could recommend?"
2: So, um, films—they're—they're—they're they're, they're just beginning. There's a fantastic documentary. Don't, don't uh, say "Sex in the City," Nabil. I'm just <laughs> telling you the second <laughs> version, "Sex in the City." You know, I, I was going to say, you know, I, and again with disclosure, you know, my 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 wife was the CEO of Dubai Media, so you know, I. I I've heard the stories from the Cannes perspective, right? And like, I'm gonna to try to norm that a bit. Look, I think many people first experience the UAE, uh, again, as we talked about earlier, probably from debate, because a lot of the film industries have come in and we've attracted that. You've seen our landscapes, you probably don't recognize it, right? So from franchise films, you've probably seen the backdrops, um, but that's really, to me, one aspect, it's of a multifaceted and really multicultural experience. Um, there are a lot of books about it. Um, I'm happy to kind of offline after this. We'll provide back to the team at Salt a list of recommended readings. Um, but as I was as I was saying, you know, when we got a bit distracted, there was a great documentary that was shot um, a little while ago, actually, and National Geographic uh, had, had put it out that shows some of the history. Uh, of the UAE and the evolution from an archeological perspective and evolution. So I highly recommend it. It's shot in the you know, highest definition you can imagine. It takes you across the, the region. But most importantly, let me end with this. It's an open invitation when COVID subsides to have those that are watching on behalf of the country, even though I'm a private and I don't have the role to play in the government. What I can say from all of us who live here, we welcome you to come experience our country firsthand either before or certainly during the expo. I know we couldn't hold it this year because of COVID. We intend to hold it next year, but there's no better way than to sort of look at the expo which will be held in Dubai as an opportunity to really engage, learn, and hopefully come to love our country. Because those that leave from here, oftentimes are always talking about when they want to come back. And I know Anthony is is chief among those. So we hope to see you soon back here, and we'll welcome you. I know my mother is sort of inquiring, so. We're looking forward to not only you, but the SkyBridge we're, team as well. We're we're very
1: excited about the future relationship with your family, you personally, the country. Uh, and I have to tell you that uh, our reception at SALT in December, I thought was really magnificent. I mean, and uh, there's, there's so much to do. And frankly, uh, one of the things I'm very proud of on behalf of SkyBridge, Nabil, is bringing more Americans to the region that have less familiarity with the region to see all the amazing possibilities there. So uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, on SALT Talks. Uh, Rachel, you did an amazing job, but I'm, I'm getting mean texts, you know, like from the movie Mean Girls from John Dorsey that I have to stop being so complimentary of you, but uh, you did a great job and Nabil, I wanna see you soon. So we're looking forward to it.